You will hear today from some acclaimed experts on children's environmental and psychological health that cell phone radiation can and does produce damage to human cells by changing their shape and changing how they function. And this cell damage in turn translates to a real impact on children's well-being as well as their physical health over the long term, not just immediately, but over the long term. Today we have a very distinguished panel that will talk with you. Professor Hugh Taylor is the Chief of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Yale University Medical Center, a distinguished clinician and scientist. He's authored more than 400 scientific publications and we'll talk with you today about just one of these on prenatal impacts of cell phone radiation on adult animals. Martha Herbert is a pediatric neurologist, a clinician, and a scientist who has established a renowned clinic at Massachusetts General Hospital and is working at Harvard University where she has leading efforts to come up with analyses of the total load impact on children's health from both chemicals and electromagnetic fields and radiation. Catherine Steiner Adair is affiliated also with Harvard Medical School and she is a clinical psychologist who will share with you her observations from studies of more than a thousand children and their parents and the way that wireless radiation is changing parenting and childhood today around the world. Now I talk to you today as a scientist and as a grandmother of five terrific children. Now as a scientist I can tell you we have a lot of uncertainty. There's no question about it. But we have enough knowledge that as a grandmother I can tell you we cannot continue to experiment on our children without any controls. And the message that you'll hear from Professor Taylor at Yale at, as well as from Dr. Herbert at Harvard and Dr. Steiner Adair at Harvard is that we can take some free and easy and simple precautions now to reduce exposures and we should do that. We were pleased recently to see that Consumer Reports advised in their magazine in November that no one should keep a phone in their pocket. And that's what Environmental Health Trust, the organization that I head, has been urging since its founding in 2007. The reasons are simple. Phones are two-way microwave radios that receive and send microwave radiation that has never been tested for its long-term safety. We'll share here briefly the story of Tiffany France, who has stepped forward to talk about her struggles with breast cancer that she developed at the unusual age of 21, having no family history of the disease. She was not aware that today phones come with warnings that they are to be kept off the body. If those warnings had been available when she was a teenager, she would not have had her phone in her bra for more than five years, 12 hours a day. Uh, that is why the American Academy of Pediatrics has called for standards to be revised for exposure to radiofrequency radiation, also known as microwave radiation. Especially in light of such things as this, the iPotty. This is a real toy, so to speak, a real potty with a screen that will protect the iPad from the damage of the baby's dribble and drool. But of course it doesn't protect the child from the radiation. Or this device, which I will show you in a moment, the virtual reality, which puts a two-way microwave radio directly in front of the brain of children as young as six or seven and is being marketed now around the world with more than 1.5 million examples of this device handed out by the New York Times to all of its readers in a partnership with Google featuring virtual reality segments every day, again with no testing as to exposure, which I will be showing you, we know that exposure of this device gets all the way through the head of a child. According to our colleagues at Porto Alegre, Brazil, who are world leaders in modeling exposure. So where are we now? In fact, the city of Berkeley recently passed the right to know, and that law has been upheld by courts despite industry challenges. People have a right to know that within every cell phone there are warnings in the operating system or in the online manuals that say, keep it off the body. If that law had existed, then perhaps Tiffany France would not be struggling 
with more than 10 surgeries, starting with a double mastectomy at age 21. Her tumors occurred right under the antennas of her phones. Now, while that is anecdotal evidence, it's sufficiently powerful that her surgeon and her oncologist have published a report urging that pediatricians now have to advise their parents and their uh, young patients not to keep phones directly on their body. Schools around the world are taking steps to reduce Wi-Fi. The city of Haifa has recently removed Wi-Fi from the schools. France has policies to have no Wi-Fi in kindergartens and with young children. In Belgium, against, it is against the law to design or give a phone to a child age seven. And the Korean government has issued warnings about digital dementia, which they are diagnosing in increasing numbers of children. The US falls far behind in these efforts. And what we have to see now is concerted information established and shared with people around the world so that they will understand the risks of cell phone radiation, especially to the young developing brain and body, are real and they can be avoided. And that's what we're going to talk about today. And now I'm pleased to introduce my colleague, uh, Dr. Hugh Taylor from Yale University Medical School. Let me share with you this thought. If Flint, Michigan has taught us anything at all, it is that the failure to prevent exposure has resulted in tremendous human costs and extraordinary financial costs to clean up afterwards. We cannot afford to treat our children like they're in an experiment without controls. Professor Taylor. Well, thank you, Deborah. So I'm an obstetrician gynecologist and very interested in fetal development. A lot of the roots of many problems we have in society today are with the fetus and exposures during pregnancy. We're particularly interested in the role of cell phone radiation exposure during pregnancy. What prompted us to get initially interested in this was a large Danish study, uh, over 20,000 women followed, uh, that looked at cell phone exposure both prenatally and in the first few years of life, uh, correlated that with behavioral problems in their children. The study uh, asked women to go back and rate, one, their amount of cell phone exposure during their pregnancy, the cell phone exposure of their children, and then behavioral problems uh, in school-aged children. And they found a significant correlation, in particular with the prenatal exposure, i.e., exposure during pregnancy, uh, and to a lesser degree with the postnatal exposure. Of course, you could always postulate that this is just an association, just a correlation, that it wasn't necessarily cause and effect, that women who spoke on the cell phone a lot perhaps were doing other things as well that might lead to behavioral problems in children. Perhaps they just spoke on their cell phone too much and ignored the children and that caused the behavioral problem. Could it, was it really cause and effect? To clarify that, we did a study in mice uh, where we randomized the mice uh, during pregnancy to be exposed to cell phone radiation. Nothing different at all about these mice, and the cell phones were muted so that the mice wouldn't even know if the cell phone was turned on or not. Uh, so the mice were randomized during pregnancy to have the cell phone on top of their cage, um, and uh, this was um, done throughout their pregnancy. And then we let them give birth, turned off the cell phone, and evaluated them with various behavioral tests as adult mice. What we found is that there were significant differences in these mice. The mice were hyperactive, their memory was decreased, um, and they had decreased anxiety. So they weren't paying attention to their surroundings, they were very active, hyperactive, um, and didn't seem to be bothered by this. They were bouncing off the walls with, with uh, really not a care in the world. What we think this looks most like is attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Of course, I want to just stipulate that mice don't get ADHD, uh, but behavioral problems in mice after prenatal exposure uh, looks very much like the behavioral problems that were seen in the large Danish study. When you have epidemiologic evidence in people, tight correlations, corresponding to clear cause and effect relationship in mice, I think we have some pretty powerful evidence that cell phone exposure during pregnancy may be harmful to the developing brain. Pregnancy is a very vulnerable, delicate time that when organs are developing, uh, they are more sensitive to some environmental insults. Uh, and I recommend to my patients that they 
keep their cell phone away from their pregnant abdomen when they are uh, going through uh, their pregnancy uh, and beyond. Thank you. And Dr. Martha Herbert has uh, written a book for Harvard University Press outlining a number of these issues and is now developing state-of-the-art treatment uh, and analyses of children who are affected with the autistic spectrum disorders. Dr. Herbert. So I've gotten interested in the parallels between what we know about autism in its systemic and brain biology and what can be caused and what has been documented to be caused or contributed to by electromagnetic exposure by Wi-Fi and exposures related to that. Autism has become a very common and expensive and difficult and challenging condition in childhood, highly heterogeneous, all over the world. And during the same period of time that we've seen increase in reported rates, we have seen an enormous increase in the pervasiveness of electromagnetic exposures. I personally think of, of the contribution of electromagnetic exposures as really important, although I always acknowledge that there are other contributors going on in parallel. What are the parallels between uh, autism and, and electromagnetic fields? The first slide. The where I think the parallels are most centrally important is in the relationship of the molecular and the metabolic brain and the electrophysiological electromagnetic brain because the chemical and molecular activity in the brain shapes very much how the brain will generate its brain waves. And the brain waves are the carriers of information and coordination of information. Next slide. So at the molecular and metabolic level, we've seen that uh, uh, Wi-Fi electromagnetic fields can damage DNA, can actually cause mutations in DNA. And in autism, we know that a certain subset of people with autism have mutations that their parents didn't have. Once these mutations are passed on, they can be carried on to subsequent generations. There's also damage to proteins, such as misfolding of proteins. There's damage to cell membranes, making them stiff and more brittle, so that the receptors and the channels that live in the membranes don't work so well and the cell becomes inefficient. There's harm to energy production in the mitochondria of the cells. Mitochondria are exquisitely vulnerable to electromagnetic field injury as well as to injury by many toxicants, even pharmaceuticals, many, many thousands of things. But, but electromagnetic exposure is one of them. And immune function is harmed. So we have documentation of problems in all of these domains in autism. And we have documentation that all of these domains can be harmed by electromagnetic fields. So minimally, I think the implication of that is that people with autism are likely to get worse with more electromagnetic field exposure. And it's possible that this may also contribute to causing autism. Third slide. Now the brain is dependent on all of these molecular and cellular functions in order to be the exquisitely calibrated, extraordinary information processing system that it is. Uh, and we have evidence that elect we have evidence in autism that there are many problems with how the brain functions. Poorer coordination, less richly organized information, uh, energy problems, antioxidant depletion. And all of these issues are also documented to be caused or contributed to by autism. Worsening of stress management worsening of sleep. Sleep is an enormous problem in autism, and sleep is, is known to be interfered with by electromagnetic fields and Wi-Fi. Um, so what can we do? The biggest thing that we can do, 
And a lot of this is freely able to be done by everybody in their homes for absolutely no cost, is to reduce exposures. It's really important to reduce exposures in the sleeping area. Put all of your electronic devices on one strip, unplug it at night, and sleep without the interference of, of those exposures, and then plug it in in the morning. Very important for men not to carry their cell phones in their pockets, because that's associated with reduced sperm count and mutations, including perhaps the de novo mutations that we're seeing in autism and greatly limit exposures for children. Minimize, you know, maybe FaceTime with grandma, but not a lot of playing, not playing with all of these devices. Children need to play in 3D with other human beings and with living things. And finally, build resiliency. It's been shown that antioxidant depletion can contribute to vulnerability to damage from Wi-Fi. And, and on the other side, Melatonin and a variety of other antioxidants have been shown in a number of studies to provide protection. So eat a healthy, multicolored, antioxidant-rich diet. And overall, reduce total load of stress because electromagnetic fields and Wi-Fi are not the only stress in our lives, but they make everything else worse. So keep the load down. So I think it's really important for us to go ahead and do serious research on this, but it's going to take a while. And meanwhile, there are a lot of common sense things that we can do to reduce risk. Even if that risk is not absolutely fully established, there's a lot of strong evidence suggesting that as the science pours in, it will be there. So we may as well be precautionary now. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Herbert. I know how busy you are with your clinical schedule, and we are very grateful to have you. I want to introduce Dr. Steiner Adair. She has traveled around the world talking about her study and the concerns she has about the impact of wireless radiation on the social and psychological lives of children and their parents and how it's really fundamentally changed the nature of, of discourse and what's considered normal today. Her book, The Big Disconnect, is a wonderful book, and it really provides uh, more information about why and how you should be able to reduce exposures. And she is available to speak to schools and parents and is doing that uh, around the whole year in many, many countries. Thank you for being here, Dr. Steiner Adair. Thank you. For the last seven years, I've been researching the impact of technology on children, on parents, on family life, and on education. Really trying to understand what is it like to be a child growing up in the digital age. Are we using these tools to be our best selves? And most important, is there any psychological fallout that we need to pay attention to that is coming clearer to us now that we've had smartphones and technology for several years? It is the paradox of parenting in the digital age that these devices make it unbelievably easy and wonderful to connect to our children 24-7 and to connect to the people we love the most. Yet at the same time, these same devices that let us Skype and face chat with our babies are clearly turning our attention away from those we love the most and in fact really straining and stressing our children. In the nine years since we've had smartphones, we've developed very radical, very different cultural norms. One of the biggest ones that really stresses everybody in families at is this. At the sound of a ping or your phone vibrating in your pocket, you can be in a conversation with your child, your husband, your wife, your colleague, and we do this. We go, oop, wait a second, I just have to check. And we turn away from the person we care about. And we actually ask them to stand frozen in time and just wait for us to come back. And it's not like we're just checking to see what time it is. We are literally checking out, going into a different conversation, and it hurts. It's rude. It's frustrating, especially when it happens a lot. And on average, adults today just check 60 to 100 times a day. Now, everywhere I go around the world, adults use the language of addiction to talk about their relationships with their smartphones. I'm so addicted to this thing. Oh, it's like crack. But it is an entirely different thing. When you hand a smartphone, something we describe either jokingly or with serious concerns about being addicted to as adults to an infant. Often I heard parents say, I don't know how you changed a diaper without a smartphone. And at first I didn't understand because I thought 
it's not that hard. And then I realized what they were saying is, when you hold a smartphone over an infant, they will calm very quickly. They love the stimulant. Smartphones are stimulants to the baby brain. And humans of all ages love a stimulant, and they go into the zone. However, one of the first and most essential tools we give our babies, and we give this tool to our kids all the way till 18 and they leave home, is the capacity to self-soothe, to calm down. And giving children stimulants in the car on the way to school when you change a diaper all day long is creating a very different brain in these babies. This is the greatest experiment on the developing infant brain without an ethical review board to fully understand the impact of technology on the infant brain in history. When I listen to children talk about what it's like to be a child with parents having all this tech, what struck me so profoundly was the kids of all ages, 2, 14, 22, up to 30, all used the same adjectives. They said they're angry and they're sad and they're mad and they're frustrated trying to get their parents' attention. And research suggests actually that in fact there's been a 40% spike in people feeling lonely at home and disconnected when they are trying in fact to get somebody's attention and their eyes are down in the screen. It is very important throughout the day that we protect critical moments of connection between children and families. Here are a few simple times that I think really will make a difference and help us outsmart our smartphones and be more smart about how we connect to our kids. Get up a half hour earlier, do all your email, but have the understanding you're going to be fully present to your children till they're out the door. Kids need us to be calm and focused when they are nervous and hunting for sneakers. The second thing is in the way in the car on the way to school, it's not a good time for you to be on your phone because your kids feel like they don't matter to you when you're talking to somebody else. And also, children shouldn't play Candy Crush on the way to school. Their brains need to rest, they need to deal with whatever is worrying them, and they need to prepare for school and talk to you about whatever concerns they have. When you pick your children up from school, don't be on the phone. It really hurts their feelings. When they come home from school, Many kids have the habit of coming home now, getting a snack, and instead of playing outside, they play on the screen. Actually, we know that physically and neurologically and socially, the best thing for a child to do when they come home from a day of school is to play outside, to talk to people in real life, to hang out and socialize face to face, and to play and build with manipulatives on your kitchen floor. When you come home from work, Kids don't like it when we walk in the door and say, hold on, honey, I want to hear about your day. I just have to finish this call. So stand outside, finish your call, but walk in the door and connect to those you love. And adults have a new habit, too. We walk in the house and we say, hi, everyone, I'm just going to check my email. And the research suggests that, on average, we disappear anywhere between 25 minutes to two hours when we check our email. The last thing, of course, is bedtime and bath time. These are important transitions in the lives of children, whether they are 4 or 14. They want us to say goodnight. They want us to beam on them. And somehow saying goodnight, honey, sweet dreams when we are texting does not have the same reassuring, magical tone of voice. We can't let new apps, new games, it's the biggest growing market, one of the biggest growing markets in the tech industry, are devices for infants and toddlers. We can't let all these devices delete old truths. Children thrive in families that do the hard work of connecting to them in real life. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, Dr. Maya Sheetreed Klein is unavailable today. <clears throat> She is a pediatric neurologist, and I'm going to uh, just briefly comment on some of the materials she was going to share with you. And I'm going to say that we will make slides available in the podcast of this that will go up online after our presentation. And among her slides are these. Practical lessons for clinicians, parents, and children, and teachers. The first has to do with clinicians. Dr. Hugh Taylor from Yale University was one of the leaders, along with Erica Mallory Blythe, uh, myself, and Charlie Teo, a distinguished neurosurgeon in Australia, of the Baby Safe Project. 
That is information for clinicians assigned off on by more than 150 experts in pediatrics, obstetrics, and gynecology. The Baby Safe Project is available online at babysafeproject.org, and I urge you to share it with your friends and your clinicians. There are medical rules and advice from the Vienna Medical Association. There is advice as well from environmental health trusts on our website, ehtrust.org. And there is advice, advice for schools that comes from EPA and from other groups that have been working on this field. The EPA noted that school environments are very important for children because children spend 90% of their time indoors and more than six hours a day in schools. And as a consequence, their exposures to wireless radiation in schools account for what looks to be the great majority of their exposure to wireless unless they have a home filled with wireless radiation. The United Federation of Teachers for New York, the uh, Los Angeles United School District, have all had very serious discussions about the need to reduce exposures and whenever possible to go to wired versus wireless. Most recently, following an important documentary film in Israel, the city of Haifa made the decision to remove wireless from its schools. The nations of Israel, Spain, France, Belgium, uh, and others, have all issued advice and rules about reducing exposure. And in Taiwan, a person can be fined if they hand a cell phone to a child age two or younger. You will see when you get to look at the slides that there are some preposterous and frankly to me horrifying applications of wireless now with young children. As Dr. Steiner Adair just told you, we need to understand that the parent-child relationship can be undermined by some of this technology. There is evidence that Dr. Shetreet Klein knows very well of and has written about in her book that children whose parents rely heavily on Wi-Fi have delayed development of speech and other problems, uh, understanding how to be empathetic, how to think about the other. And this problem of developing empathy is one that led the Korean government to issue guidance to parents and teachers about reducing reliance on digital materials. The experiment that we're now conducting in our schools, where children as young as kindergarten are being given iPads, is without precedence. There is no independent evidence that wireless computer-based learning actually conveys real sustained learning. Yet we are assuming that it does, and as a consequence we're exposing children to levels of wireless radiation that are, again, without precedence in the world. So we at Environmental Health Trust, as long as our, our colleagues who are here today, want to share with you information with grassroots environmental education who have hosted this live stream. And at this point, we're prepared to take questions. Thank you very much. First question. Thank you. This is for Dr. Steiner Adair. Um, what do they think when they see their parents text and drive? Are they afraid? What is the psychological fallout of social media sites on children's sense of self? One of the things I hear in mm, elementary age school children all the way through college and young adults is the following statement. You know, I don't get it. My parents say they love us more than anything, and yet they text and drive. And when they're texting and driving, yeah, I say, Mom, Dad, please don't text and drive. It's really dangerous. We learned that in school. And the most common things that parents say to their children, when in fact their children are doing exactly the right thing, saying, don't do this, please, it's dangerous, are the following. Shut up. This is important. This is work. I'm an expert driver. Trust me. Tell me if there's an officer. I'll put the phone down. Very rarely do children report that their parents say what we should say. Thank you so much. You are so right. I lost control. I should lock this up in the glove compartment because I haven't figured out how to control myself driving. So kids struggle with what we mean by words like trust and love when in fact we put their lives at risk and ignore them and get mad when they ask us not to. In terms of self-esteem and social networking, 
Let me say that there's so much wonderful ways of connecting the teenagers and young adults and kids are doing online. We know certain really good educational games teach kids to be collaborative. We know that they share each other. We know that being online can be life-saving for some children. However, we also know that there are social networking sites that are being developed daily. When one goes down, another one comes up, like Secret, Ask FM, My Form Spring, Whisper, and even innocuous seeming uh, social networking sites like Instagram can be used for social cruelty. And we have known for years from research on the human brain that anonymity makes us take risks, not the kind of risk we want kids to take in school trying out for new activities, but risks in being bold and being cruel. We become disinhibited. And we know just simply the way the human brain interacts with texting. When we text, not only do we lose our filter, our empathy goes down, our auditory processing goes down. And one of the biggest challenges is we are now raising the first generation of teens to have the opportunity to choose, do I text or do I talk? And most of them now prefer texting. Now, texting has some great uses. There's no question about it. However, when we text, we eliminate the two most essential tools for human communication. We eliminate tone of voice. So I can text S-O-R-R-Y to my friend, but she won't know if it's a snarky sorry or if it's a I'm really sorry, which is why there's so much confusion and drama with texting. The other thing that is eliminated when we text is we don't see the impact of our words on the other person. We don't learn the essential tool of reading social cues, and therefore we are not in engaged in a way that holds us to be accountable for the ways or potential misunderstandings of our texts. So what we see is that we have to educate children. We have to educate them to be their best self online and connect that to their best self as they are in families and in school when adults are present with them. We have to bring digital citizenship and social emotional learning into the core curriculum in schools as we educate kids to be good people in the digital age. Thank you. Uh, the next question is for Dr. Hugh Taylor of Yale University. It's, <clears throat> what do you tell pregnant women about uh, cell phones and um, iPads? And what do you tell um, their fathers who want to become fathers? And is any exposure safe? Well, thank you. I think uh, what's important to know is that uh, the distance from these devices matters a lot. The radiation dissipates with the square of the distance. So moving the cell phone only a small amount of distance away from your body has a much more dramatic impact on the actual radiation exposure. I know plenty of pregnant women who will carry a bag over their shoulder with their cell phone right uh, at the level of their pregnant abdomen or will clip a cell phone to their belt uh, again, right next to their baby. I tell them that's probably not a good idea. Try and move the cell phone away. Um, in general, there's no really no harm or downside to moving the cell phone away from you. And again, small distances can make a big difference. Uh, when you're sleeping, don't have the cell phone at your uh, side of your bed. Uh, when you're driving into work in the morning, you know, put the cell phone on the seat next to you. And don't keep it clipped to your person. Uh, when you're at work, put it across the room on a table, not, uh, again, clipped on your body. Uh, so those simple things, moving the cell phone a little bit away from us, can make a powerful impact on baby's development. And we do know that there is a dose response, that more exposure is worse. In our mouse studies, we looked at the synaptic electrical activity in the prefrontal cortex of the brain, the area that controls those types of behaviors that I mentioned earlier. Um, and the longer the, the fetus, the pregnant mom, was exposed to the cell phone, uh, the more of an effect it had on the brain, the more of a permanent lasting effect it had on the brain. So even lower levels of exposure, less exposure, less time exposed can make a big difference. So I tell moms to, to move the phone away, have it on them f less frequently, um, and to try and keep that uh, impact to a minimum. Same seems to be true in human, even that large Danish epidemiologic study that I mentioned uh, earlier. Uh, there was a trend towards a dose response. Those that talked fewer number of hours or fewer number of times a day had children that had less uh, behavioral problems in school. So clearly, anything we can do to minimize the exposure to the cell phone um, will probably make a big difference. Thanks.
Thanks. Um, and the next question is for Dr. Herbert. Um, why are these biological processes uh, so important as underlying the autistic syndrome? And why is EMF overall a threat to brain health, not just for children, but for the rest of us? How does EMF really affect the functioning uh, brain? There are biological processes that research over the last 10 or 15 years and at an accelerating pace has been showing are characteristic of the, the many people with autism. And I should say that autism spectrum disorders are very heterogeneous. People are not the same as each other. But there are certain final common pathways features at the behavioral level. So we have a degradation of fundamental biological support systems. We have a degradation in autism of the way the system corrects for damage from oxidative stress. And having that damage is a part of using oxygen. We keep it in control with enough antioxidants. But people with autism can't keep up. Wi-Fi makes that worse because it also depletes antioxidants and creates pro-oxidant oxidative stress that damages DNA, cell structures, membranes, and more. What's really interesting about that, about the problem of oxidative stress, is it's not unique to autism, but it's characteristic of all of the major chronic illnesses of today, cancer, heart disease, diabetes, obesity, and much more. So what we're saying is that at the underlying level of environmental vulnerability, autism is a chronic disease among many others that are causing catastrophic public health problems. And if it's really true, which it certainly is already documented to be in many respects, that Wi-Fi electromagnetic exposures can make this worse, then what we're seeing is that our addictive, carefree use of Wi-Fi all over the place is a contributor to the healthcare crisis in the US and in the world. So this is a very important thing. And you can say similar things for immune problems, for particularly for inflammatory problems, and for energy metabolism problems. These are characteristic of all of the chronic diseases that I mentioned. Again, heart disease, cancer, diabetes, obesity, uh, much more. So when we talk about having a more rational and modulated and more honestly minimalist use when necessary of Wi-Fi communication, a return to emphasizing hardwired Ethernet cabling as opposed to Wi-Fi everywhere, we're talking about protecting public health and protecting the biological health and the brain health of people with autism and with many, many other conditions. And I neglected to mention that these problems of inflammation, oxidative stress, energy metabolism are characteristic of myriad psychiatric conditions as well. And brain health is something that we really need to get through every single day, to have a successful life, to be able to earn a living, to get through life without ending it in dementia. Uh, so we need to minimize the drains on our, pub, uh, on our brain health and maximize the supports. And one of the ways that's really important to do this is to get control of our Wi-Fi addiction and improve the deployment of alternatives that don't carry these risks. Thank you. Now, <clears throat> there are a few other questions here. Uh, one of them deals with <clears throat> what are pediatricians, <clears throat> sorry, what are pediatricians supposed to do now? And I'll just say that, well, the American Academy of Pediatrics has a stated policy of recommending no screen time for children under the age of two. And that is still their policy. And that policy is based on two different considerations. First of all, it's based on the developmental impact and the fact that the very young developing brain needs interaction with a parent to develop bonding. And that bonding, direct bonding, is absolutely critical to a child's sense of self, their ability to develop a sense of the other, their ability to understand their place in the world, 
And when, as Dr. Catherine Steiner Adair said, they start to feel that that's threatened because this device comes in between them, you can see, as she writes about in her book, The Big Disconnect, the feeling of abject sadness on the face of a two-year-old when the mom or dad says, just a second, I'll grab this right now. And there are, <clears throat> one child told her, <clears throat> my dad calls it a smartphone, but I call it a stupid phone because it's always interrupting us. And children as young as 18 months can get really angry with their parents and they learn how to turn the phone off as a way of saying, <clears throat> pay attention to me. So there is really uh, growing evidence for the impact of undermining parenting today. Uh, another question has to do with how do we set standards for these things? Well, that's unfortunately a big problem. The standards for phones today were set almost two decades ago when the phones were like a small shoebox, when the people using the phones were military and medical people for the most part, and no one ever dreamed that there would be millions of infants and toddlers getting devices to sit on the potty with or a plastic teething rattle case uh, for the iPhone. And for that reason, we have to recognize that 20-year-old standards would not be adequate to fly a plane. They really are not adequate for these devices today. <clears throat> Finally, I was, we were asked about sleep. What's wrong with looking at your device just before you go to bed? <clears throat> and again, there are two different things here. There's the physiological response, and then there's the socio-cultural, psychological. Before you go to sleep, if you're married, you might cuddle, you might talk to your spouse. But if one of you is, just a minute, I want to check something, and the other checks out, you're missing a very private, intimate time for interaction. The other is, is, is physiological. Your, your brain is, in fact, stimulated by blue light. And blue light, it doesn't have to be blue in color, is part of the light that comes out of these electronic devices. Now, the interesting thing about blue light, 440 nanometers, is that blue light is used in medicine to treat disease. When babies are born with hyperbilirubinemia, that's blue, they're blue babies, they don't have enough um, synthesis of iron in their bodies, so they look blue. The treatment used to be to expose the whole baby with covering the eyes to blue light so that the blood running through the surface of the skin would be exposed enough, because baby's skin is so, so thin, to blue light, which would get their liver to synthesize vitamin D. That's the way we used to treat it. Now we wrap them in blankets with this blue light. So if we're treating babies that have not enough vitamin D with blue light to stimulate something, what we know in medicine is that any compound that we use to treat something can also cause a problem. Think about aspirin. Think about the chemotherapy drugs. They work against some cancers. Some of them cause others. So we have to understand blue light has biological properties. Now, what specifically what it does is it interferes with the production of melatonin. And as you've heard today, melatonin can be a very powerful antioxidant. It's naturally produced when we sleep in the dark. If we sleep in a room with a lot of flashing lights, that interferes with our ability to produce melatonin. And we wake up tired and unrested because we haven't really got a good night's rest. Children need 12 hours of sleep for much of their lives. And they are sleep deprived nowadays. Children are spending more time online, more time in front of a screen than they're spending at school more time in front of a screen than at school. This is having an effect on their sleep, is having an effect on their brain, as Dr. Maya Sheetree-Klein will say. Um, we have one more question. Okay. <clears throat> uh, what is the Academy of Pediatricians' opinion on EMF? Do they say there is no proof and we need more studies? Do they agree on EMF radiation as possibly carcinogenic as classified by the International Agency for Research on Cancer? This is a question from my wonderful colleague Prakash Munshi in Mumbai, India. Hello, Prakash. Thank you for the question. There is no disagreement <clears throat> by major professional societies that the International Agency for Research on Cancer has concluded that 
cell phones, and other sources of wireless radiation are classified as a possible human carcinogen. This is the same category as lead and DDT and other pesticides. Now, we don't give lead or DDT to children, and yet we are giving children <clears throat> the opportunity to be exposed to these devices in schools. So the American Academy of Pediatrics has a committee on the environment. They are now reviewing further all of this evidence. And as some of you know, a number of colleagues from the IARC, including Leonard Hardell, who was a member of the group that decided that this was a possible human carcinogen, and Anthony B. Miller, Professor Emeritus at the University of Toronto, and I and others have published a series of articles pointing out that newer evidence released since the IRC made its determination in 2011, that's the International Agency for Research on Cancer of the World Health Organization. Newer evidence released since 2011 clearly shows that cell phone and wireless radiation increases the risk of brain cancer. Now, the brain cancer story is complex because we know as Dr. Michael Thune from the American Cancer Society points out on a YouTube video that I recently put up on my Facebook page, we know that brain cancer has a long latency. The time from exposure to the development of cancer can be 40 years. That's generally agreed in the epidemiologic literature from a variety of sources. So if we say we have to wait 40 years from the time that heavy exposure started here and now, we're going to be in tremendous trouble. We will share a slide after this press conference is over that shows the following. The French national study published in 2014 led by Dr. Corot and her colleagues found that those who use cell phones for the equivalent of one hour a day for slightly more than two years, 836 hours, had significantly increased risks of brain cancer and that those who lived in the urban environment compared to rural environment had eight times more brain cancer. Now, what is it about the urban environment? Could it be they were the heaviest users? Could it be they were the earliest adopters? Could it be the urban environment contains a lot of other exposures to multiple sources of wireless radiation? We don't know. All we know is that right now the human data are compelling enough that growing numbers of scientists, including myself, have concluded that cell phone and wireless radiation is a probable cause of cancer in humans. Are you saying we should not have Wi-Fi in homes and schools or just turn devices off? Well, I think I'm going to let each colleague comment on that because it's a question of an opinion. I would say it this way. There's growing evidence that some small percentage, but a real percentage of people are hypersensitive, hyperreactive to wireless radiation. For those people, the modern world has become unlivable. A documentary film in Israel recently disclosed that, went to Green Bikes, West Virginia, etc. It would seem to me pretty clear that we should not have Wi-Fi in schools with young children. And many schools are now moving to wired as opposed to wireless whenever possible. And the Israeli government recommends no Wi-Fi for children under the age of, I think it's six or eight, and then very limited exposure to wired online learning uh, throughout elementary school. Now, when I say they recommend it, we know that in Israel and every other country, what the government recommends doesn't mean that's what's being done. But it does mean that the experts in the government who look at this do advise that there should be less Wi-Fi radiation and no radiation for very young children. And I agree with that. Um, I'm going to ask uh, Martha to comment on that. Dr. Herbert. What we really need to be, do, be doing here is being clear on what we're being upset about. When you say no Wi-Fi, it doesn't mean no internet access. It just means you don't, you don't walk around without it being plugged in. You can have all the internet access you want with wired, people conduct businesses that way, people conduct many, many different kinds of activities. So it is not a deprivation thing, it's a logical, healthy thing to keep it confined into a certain area, use it intensively there, and then have other areas where you're, you're, you're free of the exposure. 
One thing that we understand is that under the age of two, children, first of all, don't learn to read, and second of all, parents are being bombarded by a growth industry saying all these baby Einstein apps and games will educate your child. And there's so much false marketing. Common Sense Media did a fabulous study of over 30,000 games and found very few had evidence-based research that they, in fact, were educational. Babies learn from playing in real life. They learn from being spoken to and crawling around and rocking and rolling in the 3D world. When it comes to toddlers and infants, we have to be very selective about where we expose them to evidence-based, research-proven educational toys. We know that the baby brain and the child's brain needs up until the age of six to fully engage in playing in real life. After that, there are all sorts of very good ways to think about using technology educationally in school, but they have to be limited and they have to be very well thought out. And what we want to avoid is children sitting at desks, being on screens, doing activities that we know are actually better done from a real book with a real hand, working a real pencil, or putting a real puzzle into place, than swiping with your finger and reading on a screen hour after hour. Thank you. I would, I would close by saying we are, we are living in the age of a technological imperative where there's a confusion, where the fact that we can do something is being translated into the sense that we ought to. There are onesies for babies. You can weigh the baby's poop with a certain wireless device. You can tell if your baby is wet. There are actually more traditional ways of doing that. The fact that the technology exists does not and should not mean that we use it. As all of us have said today, children here need more lap time and not app time. And I think that message of the science behind that is clear and strong. And while we do not have definitive research on many things today, we know enough now. And if you will look at the website for the Baby Safe Project, the website for environmentalhealthtrust.org and grassroots education, you will find more information about this as well as a full video of this press conference. Thank you all very much.